0: Revelation chapter number two, would you take your Bibles if you turned there? And um, the book of the Revelation is the last book of the Bible, and some folks find themselves a little bit afraid of the contents of the book of the Revelation, but that that should not be the case. Matter of fact, God says there's a special blessing to people who read the book of the Revelation. Don't let anything of fears keep you from reading this book of the Bible. I I do think there are some complications with it. But I will just tell you, uh, John is the the writer of the book of the Revelation. He's the human instrument. All Scripture is given inspiration of God. He's on the island of Patmos. He's by himself, and he gets a visit by Jesus. And he says, I want you to write the things which were. And that's about the person, the power, and the plan of Jesus, chapter 1. And then he says, I want you to write about the things that are. Chapters 2 and 3, and that's about the seven churches. We'll talk about one of them tonight in specifics. And then the things that shall be. That's chapter 4, verse number 1, when the Lord Jesus comes and the tribulation commences. Most of the book of Revelation uh, is about seven years. Seven years of uh, tribulation. During that time, several things, just for Bible students, I'll read a couple things that you can take away from the seven years of tribulation. Now, if you are saved, and I'm saved, when the Lord comes back, we will be with the Lord. I won't be here for those seven terrible years, and you won't either. Uh, if, uh, if you've already passed on, and uh, you, you will the dead in Christ will rise first, it begins with the coming of Jesus, Revelation chapter 4, verse number 1. It concludes in the book of of, of Revelation chapter 19. But during that time, it begins to tell about the tribulation period in which God is going to put a stranglehold on this world as we know it. Everybody who thinks they're big and bad and they don't need God and they can deal with Him and they know how to deal, that guy is going to be taken down. There's several things we're going to see in the tribulation period. Number one, you'll see the anger of God played out. Anger is not a sin. Anger upset is a sin, but not anger itself. It's an emotion that is understandable. But God's anger is going to be poured out in the tribulation period. Number two, in the tribulation period, there will be an absence of the church. The book of Revelation from chapter 1 talks about the church, 2 and 3. Chapter 4, verse 1, you won't find the church mentioned again. The church will not be present during the tribulation period. God's people will not be there. There will be people saved in the tribulation spirit, but the church is absent. And then the Antichrist is in power. We'll find the Antichrist will begin to surface. And I believe that probably Satan has had an Antichrist in every generation waiting just in case. And I think there's one alive today. I don't know who he is, and I don't think I spent a lot of time. I don't have to worry about him. I'm not going to be here when he's in charge. But I do believe we have an Antichrist alive, but he's going to surface and his power will be obvious. The abomination of desolation will take place in Jerusalem. That is going to be where he will be worshipped as God. That will take place in the tribulation. The anger of God, the absence of the church, the Antichrist in power, the abomination of of desolation, that's three and a half years through it. That's going to bring about uh, a real downturn in really the... the, uh, the, uh, the stranglehold of God will take place there, especially from the three and a half years until the seven years. And then I think the awakening of the Jews, that will take place in the tribulation period. Some people begin to give this little analogy is that, of course, the Jews in World War, they for many years, they didn't have a country. They were just scattered abroad because of their sin, their rebellion, and Jesus came into his own and his own. Received him not, but as many as received him. And of course, God has given the world conquest to the local church and the church in the church age to get the gospel of the ends of the earth. He wanted the Jews to do it, no doubt. When David picked up the rocks and, and rock and began to kill Goliath, he said that all the earth may know that there's a God in heaven, a God in Israel. God wanted Jews and he wanted his nation to be that people that would bless all people. However, because of their rebellion, uh, they did not accept him, and most Jewish peoples do not. I witnessed uh, gave a tract to a Jewish man this week, and I keep a few in my in my briefcase. I saw he and his wife and his little children, and I went to him and I said, "Sir, I love the Jewish people, and I want to give you something that tells you uh, it's it's a truth from the tonic." And I fo- tonic, and I want you to read it. He said, "You know what? Thank you for being so kind to me. I appreciate it." He took it. I don't know what's going to happen from that, but i You never can underestimate the power of a seed. However, most Jews are not necessarily very receptive to the gospel, uh, but they are being saved in our time. And I'm grateful for that. Talk to Brother Rusty Guen, who is witnessing to the Jews there in, uh, in Israel as we speak. There are many folks who are faithfully getting the gospel. We support several folks that do that. Uh, last month, we gave to Jewish awareness of the surplus of our missions giving to try to make sure we have some uh, influence with getting the, the gospel of Jesus to the Jewish people Brother the Kevin Wynn in Mexico City a large concentration of Jews uh, are there uh, in Peru there's Jewish people there there synagogues there Argentina a large group of Jews are there um, brother Martinez is a wonderful soul winning missionary in Mexico going back to Israel and serving the Lord in that country I think that's great. However, uh, in the tribulation period, I do believe, and of course in World War I, they got their property back. Because of the the treatise there, the world government powers gave Israel a piece of property where it is in modern-day Israel. But no one wanted to go back there. It was was just full of nomads, full of nomads. It was barren. It was desert-like. You'd have to rebuild everything from the ground up, and no one really wanted to go back there even though they had their property in World War I. World War II, though, uh, something called Holocaust took place. And that changed the minds. The people in Austria and Germany, they had no reason to leave successful businesses, comfortable homes, and go set up shop in, in Israel. However, it changed that. It was called Holocaust. It changed their, their soul. Now their thinking and their feelings and desires were to return back to Jerusalem, to turn back to Israel. And anyone who gives you a tour of Israel can tell you the unbelievable prosperity that's been given to that property of Israel in the Middle East. One country the size of New Jersey, surrounded by 13 Muslim countries that hate its existence and don't even recognize its existence, would like for it to be wiped off the planet. And yet 80%, they say, of all citrus for Europe comes from Israel. Ingenious and, and unbelievable uh, uh, botany and things of that nature, agriculture take place on that little strip of property right there that even other Muslim countries can't seem to figure out. Why are they being so prosperous and profitable? It's Because they always are God's people. But even though they've got a body, the nation of Israel, even though they have a soul has come back to Israel, and even to this day there are many Jews going back to Israel, Their spirit is still dead predominantly. And it's going to be woken up again, I think, during the tribulation period. You'll find the awakening of Jews. Many people will be saved in the tribulation period, but many of those will be Jewish descents. And I believe that's why the 144,000 Jewish evangelists will go out. That's why you have the two prophets that will be slain in the streets and left for dead. It's all wakening the heart of the Jewish people to come. And then, of course, the last thing that you'll see there will be the annihilation of the world, and Armageddon will conclude the tribulation. Well, that we find that information primarily as we look in the book of the Revelation, chapters 4 through 19, and then, of course, the future events to come, the judgments of God uh, separating those who are in the great white throne judgment, and, and their, their judgment will take place in chapter 20, 21. And it's beautiful how the God ends the book of the Revelation He said, the spirit and the bride say, come. He that's thirsty, you come. If you want to come, I want you to come. And he doesn't close the Bible without inviting people to come to him. And by the way, you and I need to do the same thing while we have breath. Invite people to come to the Lord Jesus. Compel them to come in that his house might be full. Not speaking necessarily about the church, but certainly the the kingdom of God would be the case. This month we're talking about loving with eternity in view. May I just say on behalf of my precious wife, Linda, and our kids how thankful we are for the love that you showed us on the first uh, Sunday night of the month, and just unbelievable. We are so gracious, graciously received and treated, and we just don't deserve your kindness, but we're very thankful. Thank you for loving us and loving your pastor, and and, uh, we're very humbled by that, and thank you very much. But love is something that every church needs to have. Many of you have heard me say this many times, there are three things as I leave my office on a a service that I'm thinking about, and not always, sometimes I've not thought about it like I should, but there's three things that I try to keep in front of me when we have a church service. Number one, we want to exalt the person of Jesus Christ. If I don't remind you about Jesus, I should. I want to. If we sing songs about Jesus, I want him to be preeminent. We want to talk about Christ. Uh, because the church is not about Pastor Wilkerson. It's certainly not about you. It's not about the staff. It's not about the deacons. It's about Jesus. It's not about property. It's not about uh, a program. It's about a person, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So our goal in a church service is to exalt Christ. Number two, to hear God's word, to exalt God's son and to hear God's word. One of the things we want to do at any given service is so we can hear God's word. What does the Bible say? Because faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Number three, we would like to experience and feel in this room God's love and to spread that love to the regions beyond. Whether you're in this room or you're watching by live stream or you'll watch this later on a a YouTube channel or a Facebook channel or what have you, we want everybody, the world around, to know, for God so loved the world. When John was on the Isle of Patmos, Patmos, he said, I want you to write about the things that are. And, of course, he wrote about seven churches. The church we're going to look at tonight is the church at Ephesus. It's a church that had everything going well, but they had left their first love. We'll talk about that in a moment. They're a loveless church. And then the next church is Smyrna. And Smyrna and Philadelphia... All the other five churches, Jesus had commendations for them, things he said that were good they were doing, but then he says, I've got something against you. But he did not say that to the church of Smyrna, nor the church of Philadelphia. Those two of the, five church, the seven churches did not get a negative, sharp uh, rebuke. The Smyrna church was going through deep trials. It was being persecuted by satanic influences. And he tells them, listen now, uh, he said, don't worry. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. And you're going to go through tribulations for about 10 days. If you get a flu, a really bad flu, you need about 10 days to get that done. If you don't have some kind of a uh, some some kind of medicine, it'll take your body about 10 days to fight a bad flu. He's about 10 days. We're going to work through that. Then he approaches the church of Pergamos. And this church was a loose church. They had allowed the indoctrination of the church of the, the Nicolaitans come in a worldliness. They were kind of loosey-goosey in their behavior. It was "Come as you are, leave as you came." We just got to blend in and not to stand out. And of course, the Lord Jesus had a stern rebuke for them. Then the church of Thyatira is also mentioned in chapter two, and that was a church of lawlessness. They even had Jezebel, a a prominent lady in the church that she's called Jezebel that that has great influence. No longer is it that they're they're allowing false teaching and things of that, just lawless, no rules, just right. Then in chapter 3, it opens up with the church of Sardis, and it was a lifeless church. They had a name on the sign, but there was no life inside of the building. They had a church, they had a group, but there was no life there. You have, a, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead as a door now. You have no influence on in your community. And he tells them that if you, there are some folks inside your church that are still alive and you've got a small remnant, well, figure it out and get it going. And then he approaches the church of of, uh, Philadelphia, and that's a a loyal church. It's a church that's not all that big, but they have a loving testimony, and they're loyal to the Lord, and he doesn't have anything negative to say about them. And then he rounds out with the church of Laodicea. And the church of Laodicea is a lukewarm church. It's a church that's neither hot nor cold. They think they got it all going on. They have need of nothing but they didn't know that they were naked and they didn't know that they were hungry and didn't know that they were blind. They had all the, they had the wealth, they had the options, they had, they had choices, but they were weakened by a lukewarm attitude, apathetic. Now, as you look at these, I think that probably every church today that's any church at all in Christianity falls in one of these categories. Loveless. Uh, maybe a, a church that's, that, is, uh, that is lowly, that's just weakened, maybe in Yemen or maybe in Saudi Arabia or Dubai or, or uh, Uganda or someplace It's just they're, just, they're just taking it on the chin. Or there's loose churches out there like Pergamus, or lawless churches like Thyatira, or dead churches like Sardis or loyal churches that aren't that big and not doing all that hot, but they're being faithful to God. And then there are churches that are lukewarm. And, you know, to have churches like that, you've got to have individuals like that. So I think if you look at any church, you'll see that they'll fall in one of those seven categories. Another way to look at this, and people down through the ages have put this chronologically and said that, you know, the first church in the first century or in the first centuries, that was the Ephesus church. And then it goes on into to churches and then it ends up now that we're in the Laodicean age where, for the most part, true Bible believers now fall all into the Laodicean age. And, and certainly we can see many of our attributes in the Laodicea where we just... We're just apathetic. No one's really too hot, and no one's too cold. Just everybody's just kind of lukewarm. Well, I don't want to be that way. But in the church of Ephesus, as we talk about the love that was missing, uh, he just says, he says, look, I got to tell you something. You guys are doing really good with this. Now, Ephesus was a landmark church. It was started by the apostle Paul. He spent three years in that city longer, I think, than he spent in any other city that he ever ministered in. He got to teach at the school of Tyrannus. I don't know exactly what that means, but many people believe that Tyrannus was a medical doctor from Rome, and he had a large medical school in Rome, and then he had another one set up in Ephesus. He may or may not have been a Christian, but however the situation, it was at the school of Tyrannus that they either gave him a location in which he could train have a Bible Institute, maybe in the night, maybe in the daytime, but uh, could train servants of Christ. And during that time, Paul, for three years, it wasn't a walk in the park. He had many troubles and lying away of the Jews and tears and challenges, but they stayed faithful to train other people to preach the gospel of Christ. And from those three years, uh, there was a multiplicity of servants of Christ and pastoral leadership that was spawned from that ministry. When Paul went back and went on the next place, he told Timothy, Timothy, I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, that you charge some that they teach no other doctrine. You might remember when Paul was uh, on his way back to, Rome, or to Jerusalem, he stopped on the shores of Miletus, had his boat there, and rather than go into Ephesus, he asked the men to come out to Miletus where he stood on the shores and he gave them that historic challenge in Acts chapter 20 when he told them, that, um, that none of these things move me. Neither count I in my life dear to myself, but that I may finish my course with joy. And, and he wanted to witness to everyone. He told them how, we, how I was with you for these years and what we went through together. And he told them the, what the words of Jesus said in that same context where he said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. He told the pastors, he said, take heed to yourself and over the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. And he goes, I want you to to take care, to feed the flock of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. And he says, now some of you, because after I leave, there's going to be grievous wolves that come in and they're going to bring bad doctrine because doctrine determines destiny. It determines your decisions and your destiny. He said, there's going to be some bad boys come in and they're going to come in and they're going to start trying to infiltrate you with doctrines that are not biblical to truth. And he said, even from some of you, some of you pastors I'm looking at, as Paul would say, some of you are wolves. And you're going to be bringing in those doctrines. You're going to be be bored with the basics, and you're going to bring in truths that are not really truths. You're going to bring in things into into the teaching, and it's going to destroy the work of the Lord. It was that church. Paul has now been in heaven for many years. They think that he passed away maybe in A.D. 61, 62. This was written 29 years after that if those numbers are correct. So the church at Ephesus is still marching on. And it's the first church that Jesus addresses. Remember, this is not John, this is Jesus. He's the inspector. He uses the word star representing the pastor and candlestick representing the church. And he says, look, I'm I'm, uh, I'm gonna inspect every church. And every one of the church, he tells them, I know thy works. There's nothing in First Baptist Church of Hammond that God doesn't know. And I'm not talking about the building. I'm not talking about the Sunday. I'm talking about in your life, in my life. He knows everything that's on my phone, knows everything that's on your phone. He knows everything that's on your computer, knows everything that's on any computer in this church, family, or in your privacy. Hey, listen, God, the ways of the man are before the eyes of the Lord. He pondereth all his goings. He tells them in every church, I know what you're going through. Whether it was good or bad or whatever, I know your works. Let's look what he says here in chapter 2, verse number 1. The Bible reminds us in in Revelation chapter 2, he says, unto the angel, that's the pastor, of the church at Ephesus write, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He says, I'm walking through my churches, and I'm watching, and I'm looking at these seven churches and their pastors and their leaders. Verse number two, I know thy works. He's talking now to the church at Ephesus. He goes, I know your, I know what you do. I know your works and thy labor. I know you're a hardworking church. And thy patience. I know you have pressed through very difficult times. Patience in the Bible is not just sitting and waiting. Patience normally, not say it wouldn't entail that, but normally patience is strength to keep going. You went through some difficult times and you stayed faithful while you went through them. He says, "I, I know your works. I know your labors. I know your patience. Look, if you would please, verse number two. And how that thou canst not bear them which are evil. He says, you're separated. You're fundamental people. And thou hast tried them that say that they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars. He said, you've identified false teaching and you've called them out. There's some guys who come in and say, yeah, I'm from God. And you realize they weren't from God. Oh, I'm preaching the Bible. And you realize they were not preaching the Bible. They had let uh, theology turn into philosophy. And you, you called them out on it and you got it straight. Congratulations, church at Ephesus. God says, I know your works. I know Your labors, I know your patience. I know what you went through and you've come through it good. I know that you have not allowed, uh, you have not slipped into liberalism. You've been fundamental. You've been favored. Look, if you would please, at verse number three. And has borne and has patience. And for my name's sake, has labored and has not fainted. You guys have not quit. You've just continued on. You've taken it and you've been faithful and I admire you. So they were fav- favored, they were fundamental, they were faithful. Verse number four, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. He said, but I got to tell you, I don't think you've left your love behind. You know, love is, um, love is, a, is, is a treasured attribute to God. He even says God is love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he said, there abided faith, hope, and charity, but the greatest of these is, he said, I, I want you to want a more excellent way. What is an excellent way? It's love. He said, you know, I, I look and see at the church at Ephesus, and I see that you guys are, you guys are checking all the boxes. Patience, works, you're disciplined, you're, you've got duties, you're doing what you're supposed to do. You've remained separated. You you called out false doctrine. You you believe right, and that's great. He said, but I do have something against you. You don't love me like you used to love me. You know, it's interesting, and that, that plays out in numbers of ways. He said, you've left your first love. You didn't lose it, but you left it. You know, every relationship has to be rekindled with love. Marriage parenting, friendship, but definitely in the house of God and for God. Years ago, there was a guy whose name was Vance Havner. He was a, a great evangelist. He married a precious girl, and I'm sorry, I can't remember her name right now, but whatever her name was, they didn't have children. And he was used of God. He was a real, just a very, he had a lot of pithy sayings and things that he would say, and he was a hard charger, but God used him. I think his wife's name is Sarah, but I may be wrong. But she would always pack his bag before he would go off in a meeting. She would fold his shirts and his T-shirts and his, get his socks ready, and everything would be ready just the day. And then she would definitely take his shoes, and she would shine his shoes, put them in a little bag and stick them into a his, into his suitcase, and he would head off to his meetings where he would preach he said, I always loved to go and open my suitcase on my bed wherever I was going to stay in a prophet's chamber or a hotel room and get ready to preach because I knew that my suitcase was going to be prepared. Someone loved me and prepared it for me. And then I used to look at my shoes and think, man, my girl loves me. I could even see my, 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 uh, my uh, portrait in my shoes. It was just She just took a lot of time, you could tell. He said, but she died last year. And I pack my own bag now, and I don't shine my own shoes. I normally go and get to the guy down the street to shine them for me, or I'll send someone down, and they'll shine the shoes, and we'll put them in there, and we'll go off to our trips. He says, but when I look into my shoes, they're shiny, but there's just no love in the shine. Because it's done for a guy who had given some money. It's not done from a lady who loves me. You know, the truth of the matter is, one thing all of us have to stir up in our hearts and lives is a genuine love for God. It trumps so many things. People don't quit serving God who love God. If you need a, a pat in the back or you always need encouragement, you need someone to get in your face and yell at you, you're missing something. There ought to be an intrinsic motivation inside of you. And that is, you know how much God loves you and you want to love him back. And he says, you know, guys, I appreciate your fundamental and your favored and your faithful. And all oh, that's great. But I do have something I miss. I miss that first love we used to have. And he tells them how to get it, how to fix it. Look, if you would please to the next verse, would you please? We're looking in verse, chapter 2 and verse number 5. Would you read it out loud with me? Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. He said, I, I, it's so important to me, if you don't get this straight, I'm going to come and take away your influence from the community. I'm going to take away your influence. I'm going to come and take your candlestick and your church out of relevance. Wouldn't that be a tragic thing? What does he tell them to do? He says three things. Number one, remember from whence thou hast fallen. Remember where where you left him. Can you imagine Mary and Joseph leaving Jesus? They thought they had him with him and took away and left him back in Jerusalem three days trying to get him back. The truth matters, all of us need to figure out something. Is my heart warm toward the Lord? Do you still read your Bible? Do you still love church? Not because of the church service, but because of the God of the church. Not because it's, you're checking off something on your Bible reading schedule, because you love the God of the Bible. Remember when you used to go soul winning? See, I think loving Christ and reaching souls are going to go hand in hand. Some of you, you, you haven't led someone to Christ in a long time. And it's not because there's not unsaved people that want to hear the Gospels, because we don't tell them. We don't even get engaged in conversations. We talk about things we love, and that's the reason we do not talk about Jesus Christ. It's because our love level for him is very small. We're glad to write a check, and i write one too. We're glad to support missions around the world, and we should. But we don't, we'll, we'll, we'll be hoping people in Africa get saved. who won't cross, cross the street to witness to somebody. We've got thousands of thousands of people that will attend a weekend here and have a Saturday soul-winning meeting. And even people who get a che- paycheck from our ministry don't even darken the soul-winning meeting. You can type a paper. You can teach a class. You can organize an event. But you can't stand on someone else's property and talk to them about Jesus Christ. You can't engage with someone about the Lord. You can't jump on a, on a bus route and visit a bus route with somebody. So, Pastor, are you trying to browbeat me? I don't want to browbeat anybody. What I'd like to do is to say, you talk about things you love, and we know this, for God so loved the, and he doesn't want anyone to perish. I think if we're going to remember where in the world, where was I when I fell deeply in love with the Lord? And then he says, recognize you've got some problems and repent. Say, Lord, I don't want to be like this. I don't want to be fruitless. I don't want to be a lame, fruitless Christian, barren, year after year, not winning, not helping somebody, just being one of many who look and sing and watch. Let's get involved. Repent. Change. And then he says, I want you to remember, repent, and resume the first works." You've heard this said before, and I think winning people to Christ is keeping the main thing the main thing. And oh, how we need to get infused about that. But I'm going to tell you, I don't think you have to focus on winning people to Christ if you'll fall in love with Christ. If we'll deepen our love for him. He says, look, if you're not going to love me enough to get the gospel out, I'm going to come and take your relevance away. So I would just ask you tonight, and of course, the rest of the passage of Scripture, we'll read it for the sake of explanation, but let's look, if we can, please, at verse 6. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of Nicolaitans, and I also, which I also hate, and that's worldliness. I think... Um, if you, in, it's, it's inserting pagan philo- philosophies into the church of Christ. I think that's what the doctrine of Nicolaitans are. Some people think it's, it's, um, it's, uh, it's clergy over the laity, and I, I don't know, I, I'll accept it, and I won't argue about that, but I think really it is allowing, allowing worldliness to seep into our lives. Because you can't be a vibrant, soul-winning Christian if you're a worldly Christian. He said, said, you guys have, you guys have, you've checked the the doctrines of Nicolaitan, and I hate that too, and I'm glad. Verse 7, but he that hath the ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith of the churches, and to him that overcometh, I will give him the eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And of course, each time, a church responds positively to God's, God's uh, provocation to remember, to repent, and to resume the first works. He says, "I, I got something for you for that. Because you'll never do anything for God without some sort of recompense. I think we learned that even this morning. When Jesus used Peter's boat for a little while, he let him have a whole bunch of fish as a result. Hebrews 6 and 10 tells us that God is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love and your faithfulness and your service to the saints. He said there's nothing that, nothing that God doesn't do that he doesn't reward that. And he tells us that. In closing, let me ask you to ask the Lord this, would you consider this? Ask God for a deep and sincere love for him. Say, God, please give me a deep and sincere love for you. For Christ. Number two, asking for a deep and sincere love for the saints that, you know, those who are Christians, husbands for your wives, wives for your husbands, Sunday school workers for those who work in your Sunday school. Bus workers, those deacons for deacons. For the body of Christ, the people that we know, that are, know they're, they're belonging, they belong to the Lord. And then ask God for a deep love for the lost. I can't give that to you, and I don't think you can give that to me. But I do think all of us ought to say, Lord, I'm in that group. I don't love you, I don't love the church or my brothers and sisters, and I don't love the lost like I need to. I want you, I'm going to remember, I'm going to repent, and I'm going to resume getting back to a life of love for God, for my brothers and sisters, and for the lost. I I, I plead with you. I feel like as we think about loving with eternity in view, we've got to start with God. We've got to continue with each other. By this you'll men know that you're my disciples. If you have love for the lost, no. Love one for another. And then love for those who are without Jesus. I think the last one will come automatically if we can get the first two right.